What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. 2020 changed us all, and among the sectors most drastically impacted by this Fakakta year was the international film industry. Release schedules postponed indefinitely, theaters completely shut down and on the verge of bankruptcy, a vicious debate over the possibility of same-day streaming release, cinema will be experiencing the reverberations of the coronavirus and its resulting economic shutdown for some time to come. In fact, things may never be the same. But while film was down in 2020, it was not out there was still some good movies to be released one way or another this past year. And for this edition of The Great Pop Culture Debate, we will be discussing the best of 2020 film. If you want to see what happened between me, Bora, and Rudy Giuliani in a hotel room, you'll need to subscribe to my OnlyFans. I'm your host, Eric Resniak. I'm joined by my panel. Uh, forget theme parks. She would like to join the class action suit against 2020 itself. Please welcome back Carissa Claus. It's very true. 2020 has been a ride worthy of action part. It really has. <laughs> he may not be the first cow, but he'll forever be a full-blown pig. It's Kevin Dillon. Boink, boink, bitches. <laughs> and no longer promising, no longer young. I'll defer to him on the woman. It's Matt Turk. <laughs> hey, everybody. <laughs> everybody. Uh, our best of 2020 episodes will be a little bit different than our usual format. There's no polls, there's no brackets, there's barely even any debating. Our panelists are just going to do a pop culture show and tell on our individual top fives of the year. Do you disagree with some of our picks? Do you want to add some of your own to the discussion? Head to greatpopculturedebate.com and leave a comment on this episode or find us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook and tell us what you think. With that out of the way, we're going to get right into the top fives. I am alphabetically first in this group, so I will start. I'm going to make the same disclaimer I made in our warm-up, which you can find on Patreon if you're a subscriber. Uh, for me, best of film for 2020 is kind of a misnomer. Uh, for me, it was, here are a bunch of films that I liked that were released in 2020. I watched a lot of movies this year, a lot, as I think many people did, but very few of them came out in 2020. While the music and TV episodes, I was dealing with an embarrassment of riches in those sectors. For me, 2020 film, as I think everyone on this can agree, was a much smaller um, field of new entries, right? So when I say best of, I'm saying the ones that I enjoyed the most. I'm not saying that they are peerless or of an incredible critical quality. I'm talking about the ones that I enjoyed the most. And my first one is Onward, which is released by Disney Pixar and is available on Disney+. Plus. So uh, I know many of the people on this panel are eagerly awaiting Soul, which will be released, uh, I think, next week, two weeks from now on the platform. Yeah, we're yeah, we're recording this like the second weekend of December. Um, Onward is my Pixar film of the year. It was released in theaters like immediately before the pandemic hit. And then Disney made the bold move to put it out on Disney Plus for free just a few weeks later once everything shut down. 
I play Dungeons and Dragons. I have brothers and I have daddy issues. So for me, this movie was a triple threat. It was very relevant to my interests. Uh, I think it's a beautiful film. I love the animation style. I think the fantasy mixed with kind of a high school idea is something I haven't seen a ton of in the past. So I thought the concept was very cute. Great voice cast with Tom Holland, Chris Pratt, Octavia Spencer. And honestly, I did not even realize it was Julia Louis-Dreyfus as their mother for the entire film. Like I could not place her voice. It's very strange to me um the thing i felt about onward and again i'm not saying it is the best pixar movie i'm not saying it's incredible but for me i thought it was really sweet and very thoughtful and had some great action sequences but more often than more than that there's not a ton of films that explore the relationship between brothers in animation we get a lot of sisters we get a lot of uh the, the female heroines kind of doing self-discovery and uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but if you're looking specifically at Disney movies, it's way more weighted to women than it is to men. I, I can think of Big Hero 6 as a another example of this type of a film, but I appreciated that this was out there, again, as someone who has brothers and um, also was very interested in fantasy and D&D. In fact, I play D&D with one of my brothers every week. Um, it's It really hit me, and I, I thought it was really lovely, and I do think I actually teared up a little bit towards the end. So that is my number five pick, and I'm going to throw it over to Carissa for hers. Um. Okay, so are we starting at the bottom of the list? Start with your like number five, and we're gonna work oh, our man. way. Oh man. Okay. Um. Well, I'm just gonna say, uh, yeah, my number five is probably Dick Johnson is Dead, which is a documentary on Netflix. Um, and it's about a woman who is a filmmaker and her uh, aging father who is on his own and has recently been diagnosed with um something. I forget. It might just be dementia. Um, and so as a way to try and cope with his impending death as well as like her feelings about it. Um, Cause she's very close with him. Uh, she decides to make a documentary filming him dying all the ways he could die. Um, they move him to New York. And um, she, one of the ways she imagines is an air conditioner falling out of a window. So they stage this and she has like a little crew and he participates in this stuff for her. And through this kind of like, weirdly dark um way of processing the inevitable you know she kind of works through her feelings about it and gives us the insight on her relationship with her father and he's just um he's just such a wonderful person and it's such a sad and funny and like heartbreaking but just ultimately like warming film um and one of the things that we were kind of bandying about, you know, uh, regarding just like things to talk about this year um, was best performance. And I said in our group chat, like my best performance of the year would be Dick Johnson because he's mm. just he's so willing to do everything she asks him to. And you can tell at some point he doesn't get it sometimes, um, but sometimes he really gets it. And I just I just really loved this film. Yeah, um, and I, I think I was going to say, Kevin, you saw it, right? I, I love this movie. I, I'm a big fan of Kirsten Johnson's. Her her documentary, Camera Person, is is probably easily in my top five favorite documentaries of all time. Um, that's about her experience uh, with her mother, but it alter, also intercuts different types of stories. She's done two different documentaries about losing her 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 family, um, and and I. I did travel on an Amtrak once. Don't judge me, people. I wore a mask, I promise. 
And I decided to watch this on my Amtrak train ride home. And I literally sobbed for like most of it. I think this movie has, it really deals with, I I had a grandmother who had uh, dementia and Mm -hmm. um, the connection is there and the the loss. She was definitely like a parent in many ways to me. And, um, you know, I think this film deals with empathy in such a beautiful way. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think it has... I was going to say, I think it has the best ending of anything I saw this whole year. Yeah, I was going to agree. I was going to say, this has the best final shot of anything this year. Best. And um, one of the things that he does, like, they, so they move him, part of the film's journey is they move him from his home to, is it, it's like her apartment, I think. Her her apartment, yeah. In New York City. And so as a going away, they throw him a funeral. So he, he lives his own funeral and his best friend gives like the most ridiculous and lovely and wonderful speech. And everybody's just sobbing. And it's just like the best send off and the most wonderful. There's so many wonderful moments in this film. Like if you have a parent, you have to see it. It sounds incredible. So thank you, Krista, because I'd never heard of it before we started talking about this. So thank you very much for bringing that to my radar. Yeah. Um, Kevin, I'm going to pass it to you. What's your your fifth movie to be talking about? Okay, so I realized this as we were starting to record. No one else is talking about Sound of Metal, right? Oh, no. I don't think so. Kevin's okay, great. Okay, great. So I'm going to actually swap out what I was going to talk about and talk about Sound of Metal. I'm so glad um, okay. because it, absolutely it would be criminal for us not to mention it. So thank you. Yes, um, no problem. So I was able to, I think it was Middle Valley Film Festival, um, did a lot of good online um, streaming for films. And Sound of Metal was a film that I was hearing really great buzz out of uh, the Toronto Film Festival about it. I was hearing really interesting things. Um, it, it is directed by Darius Martyr. This is his first actual feature length film. Um, as a director, he did a documentary before this, but this is his first feature. Um, and it centers around um, actor Riz Ahmed, who was in Nightcrawler and The Night Of. And he's a drummer in a, in a, in a rock band, and it, it grapples with him navigating his um, becoming hearing impaired and losing his hearing. Um, oh, wow. I and yeah, it's really good. It just came to Prime a week ago. Um, it is, my God, it is a movie. It, I think for me, it's the movie Dick Johnson is dead, which Carissa was just talking about. hit me probably the hardest, like emotionally. It was like my biggest cry. Whereas I think Sound of Metal and another movie I'll talk about later really just like hit me in this like deep emotional core of my body around the way you connect with this community of folks who are either deaf, hearing impaired, or have hearing have issues with their hearing because a lot of what you get to see is folks who are actors who actually are hearing impaired in this journey in the story help Riz Ahmed's character navigate what that means. And so um, I, I think the film does such a great job of boiling down, you know, the experience of someone who had active full hearing into someone who's gradually losing a, a piece of their ability status as an older person. Um, and Riz Ahmed's performance is just, oh my God, he will probably be my best actor of the year, like in the lead actor category. I think he's so flawless in the film. He's a yeah. great, great performer. Um, 
I think some people potential, I've heard some quabbles with the sound design being too sound designy, but I think the sound design of this film is utterly flawless because it, you get to, you get to visually, you get to audibly understand what he's navigating through his hearing loss. And I don't really want to spoil any of the journey he goes on um, because I think that's important for you to understand and resonate with his character growth and development. But what you hear in sound design is actively really so interesting. It's some of the most interesting sound design I've heard in in all year. Um, and then Olivia Cook is great, and I don't love her, but I think she's really growing into her. Uh, she plays his girlfriend, um, and I think she's really strong as well. And there's a, a gentleman named Paul Reese who is hearing impaired, who leads this um, hearing impaired kind of collective or commune. Um, and he is, oh my God, his performance is heartbreaking. It's just a really, really, really great film. And uh, Matt, it sounded like you had some thoughts on this too. Uh, all I want to say in this case is that it's it's actually interesting in that, Eric, we were talking about what came out this year and the weirdness of this year. I actually think it's stupidly been an amazing year for film. Like, I it's agree. It's so hard to find a lot of stuff because there's been so much material, but in a different year, Sound of Metal would have been my number one pick. Like, it's yep. that good as it is currently. It's my number seven. So, wow. like, cool. it's, but it's absolutely fantastic. I think everybody should see it because it is a fantastic piece. Oh, it's my, it's my number seven, too, actually. I just am not talking about some of my other films, but we tied. Love it. <laughs> there you go. I will say to the folks listening, um, I'm going to defer to the other people on this podcast on that because these folks really were living and breathing the film industry this past year. And I am, I guess, a tourist uh, in that. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm not doing that self-deprecating. I'm really trying to make the point that um, – in this particular one with movie and, and or, or excuse me, with music and TV, I would say that I'm, you know, up there with the rest of them with this one, the subject matter experts for those listening at home are Carissa, Kevin and Matt. And so please wait their opinions far <laughs> higher than you would mind. With that, I'm going to turn it over to Matt. What's your first one to discuss? Uh, s- surprisingly, based on your phrasing of that, my first one is first cow. <laughs> there you go. And that's why I said that because I was looking at it. I'm oh, like, <laughs> you see, in that case, I'm just like, oh, it's a it's a coincidence. You're like, no, Matt, I am Eric. I have plans. <laughs> <laughs> um, so first cow um, is about um, two men, um, a skilled baker and then a Chinese immigrant entrepreneur um, who are kind of wandering, kind of like avoiding like other people um in the 1820s northwest um and the two of them end up collaborating on a successful business um through i love this phrasing through the clandestine participation of a nearby cow (laughs) (laughs) i'm just smiling my way through this entire description i i also saw and loved this film and it just it's so charming (laughs) it it is and that's i think so I had been desperately wanting to see this. And again, it was supposed to open right around the time theaters closed for the pandemic. And so when I finally got a chance to catch it on streaming, I was so excited. This actually lived up to the unreasonable expectations I had placed upon a movie called first cow. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. It's, it's quiet, but it also has elements of like a little bit of tension to it, but it's really, it's about the central relationship between these two men who are both trying to survive. Um, and about, again, like class struggles and power struggles going back as far as not that we know that 
the 1820s wasn't without that because clear, obviously it very much was, but it's like things where we were like, this still is a problem. Like, yep. so, like so, so, so much later. And also um, if you like, like the idea of like, occasionally I think I'm doing a jet bad, bad job wording this, but like, I think food porn on screen yes, yes. ends up with like these cool, like hugely elaborate situations. And first cow mm. has amazing food porn about oily cakes, like rough, Ugh. like early donuts cooked over fires. Like, but that honey know, though, right? Honey. Don't they the honey? Oh yeah. God. Yeah. Like it's, it's first cow is a fantastic, fantastic little film. I, I love it. Kelly Reichardt did such a great job. And Kevin, you wanted to talk about it, right? Oh my God. I, I, I worship at the altar. That is Kelly Reichardt. She teaches at Bard. Same. She, teaches, she teaches at Bard. She is probably, I'm really grateful that my friend introduced me to her. I think if you love uh, films about human study that are just about authentic, authentically living a day in the life of a person, all of her films are hands down the films to see. But And this one is just great. And the other thing I want, the only thing I want to add to this also on top of that, because I could wax poetic about her for hours and I won't, is um, this also reads very queer and she's mm-hmm. very good at creating these like queer adjacent masculine stories. She did it with Old Joy, which came out in, in 2006. Um, and so she, and so the lead in this, John Majaro did an interview with a friend of mine and you know, he was like, absolutely. You know, there's definitely a queer adjacency to this. We we played it that way. It works that way. Um, in a way, this is not just, it's a love story between these two men. Mm-hmm. Uh, they set up a home together. It's, mm-hmm. it's really beautiful. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, I could talk for hours, but it's a great, great, great film. Awesome. And again, as, as the tourist, it was one that was not on my radar. So thank you to my film experts. Um, I will go for my second pick for this year, which is the 40-year-old version, not virgin, version, V-E-R-S-I-O-N. Uh, this is by writer, director, and star Rada Blank. And it's on Netflix. You can watch it now. And it is the story of a woman named Rada who's just shy of her 40th birthday. She was a playwright who a decade prior had made the 30 under 30 list. So she was something of a prodigy, uh, had a very, you know, uh, auspicious career in front of her that never quite materialized and she's now teaching school to inner city youth teaching drama um and she's trying to figure out what the fuck to do with her life especially since she's becoming 40 and um it's not a super high concept film um but it is a very endearing film and what resonated with me was it's dealing with a lot of very interesting and very relevant topics that we're dealing with right now. You've got creativity versus commerce being a a big backbone of this. There's a lot of discussion about what it means to sell out and whether or not that's actually wrong. There's the discussion of women in 40 struggling to be taken seriously by society uh, and and, in many different areas of society. There's complex racial and emotional or economic issues going on here. And perhaps more importantly, the quandary of why gay men have black women's butts. And so um, (laughs) it is a, a very funny charming movie it absolutely sags in the middle like there's parts where i was like this could be tightened up but at the same time i was like i can't identify 
a scene to take out unless you take out the entire subplot with her students, which I don't think is is the right choice. Um, but the it, it starts strong, it ends strong, and in the middle you get some really fantastic rap verses by both Rada and uh, at one point she goes to a Queens of the Ring rap battle, which is a fantastic scene. Um, and I, I would watch anything that she does for hours. I think she's really magnetic and she's hilarious. And I'm hoping that we see a lot more of her in the coming years, because for me, I was not familiar with her before this movie and I really fell in love with her within minutes. So that is my number four. And with do, you that, mind, do you mind if I give you credit? Because I love that you've downplayed your input into our podcast, but onward, I, I mean, isn't a terrible movie. It's quite enjoyable. And 40 year old version is very good. So your mm-hmm. taste is is super great, Eric. Don't downplay that for yourself. You, I'm, I'm not trying to do self-deprecating. I swear, if I was, I know, but you, to you that. have great, two great, two good movies, two good movies. You're solid. I think my my picks are accessible, is what I will say. <laughs> and deliberately, all of my picks are available for now. Almost all of them are streaming free. So if you are interested, you can find these on either Netflix, Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, whatever. Um, but Eric, thank you, Kevin. Eric, I do want to. I want to double just quickly double down on what Kevin just said because I have been wanting to watch this film and i have not gotten it to it yet and so therefore you have now made it go further up my queue so thank you eric so there you i go. just find it it's charming that's how i felt about it um, I, and she's great i also saw it and there's a lot i mean i am a woman who is about to be turning 40 and so i really looked to this film as like you know show me what to do and it really sheeps just like i don't fucking know what to do and you're like well great thanks um, <laughs> but, but uh, she figures it out yeah, and and I think there's a lot of um, imposter syndrome too, kind of like with the students. Yeah, I found it really relatable. It was on my long list. It just didn't. It's sort of like what Matt was saying about you know number seven having some other year being number one. Like I I also liked it a lot. I thought it was really good. And I'll say this, I'm past 40, but the thing that really kept speaking to me, and obviously Rod Blank and I are coming from completely different places, but um, my whole thing was I'm starting a podcast without knowing anything about podcasts in this past year, and I'm just going for it. Fuck it. And I feel right. like that very much is exactly what's going on in this film. And That's I really the only that. way to do anything. Yeah, just fuck it. Like, what else are you going to do? Yeah. What are you going to do? Absolutely. So, uh, Carissa, go on with your fourth pick. Okay, so my fourth pick is also a documentary um, called Class Action Park, which is an HBO Max uh, streaming. And um, like, okay, so it's 2020. Everyone's having a shit year. Like, I don't want to turn this into the Notting Hill brownie scene, but like, I've been fucking (laughs) going through it. Okay. So like, I've had a shit year. And uh, this documentary came to me at the exact right time when I needed to focus on someone else's suffering that wasn't my own. Um, And this and this happened in the past. So like, you know, who are these people? I don't you know, they brought this on themselves for the most part. Um, So it's a documentary about an actual place like a water park, but not all of the rides were water um, called Action Park that was in New Jersey in like the 80s and early 90s, I think, until it got shut down. And it just like it. It is mind-boggling how terrifying this place is. And the the documentary is just like 
it's so absurd because whatever they that you think like okay they have to be done talking about the worst of this but there's an hour left and then they're like yeah well and then there was the kayak experience and you're like how can the kayak experience you know how can something called that be dangerous and then they proceed to tell you how people were electrocuted on that ride <laughs> you're like oh my god um so just to give you a taste, this is in the beginning of the film, and this is when I like fully signed on. So there's a ride that looks like a loop-de-loo, and they put people down it, and like they come out the other side. Um, but they're talking about it in the beginning and saying that that ride was always shut down. And um, basically, this theme park figured out its safety by trial and error and not studying physics. <laughs> so they would put through their employees, which were all like tiny teenagers with summer jobs who did not care. Um, and then they would start putting down people of different sizes to see how that worked. And so everyone was coming out of this ride like all scratched up and they couldn't figure out what happened. So they took apart the top of the loop-de-loop and they found a bunch of people's teeth embedded ah! in the ah! <laughs> The teeth of previous riders was ah! embedded in the padding and was scratching people when they came through. So, like, if this doesn't make you laugh, then you don't want to watch this movie. But, um, I, I had a great time. So, yeah, it, it was just, it was what I needed. It was the schadenfreude, you know? Like, I just... I had to do it. Shot and Freud for <laughs> the win. Honestly, that is fantastic. I have I have not yet watched this one. I've been meaning to. You I wish have HBO, to. I have to. I would love it. It sounds like it's made for me. Um, it's just HBO Max still does not have a Roku app, which yeah. drives me crazy. Oh. Um, but uh, we got to figure it out because um, I, I've been wanting to watch this forever, and I'm so glad that you brought it up to here because it totally fits right into my particular worldview. Um, anything else to say about that? Anybody want to add? I'm horrified Otherwise, and intrigued. Yeah. Embedded into ditto. Ditto. American Horror Story season 11, Teeth and the Water Seriously. See, I mean, come on. That's like the first five minutes of the movie and you're like, well, I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. All right, Kevin, give me your number four pick. My number four is Mank uh, by David Fincher. Um, I was actively looking forward to this film. Although, you know, with directors like this, I go in trepidatious because I never know what the experience is going to be like. Um, and so Mank follows uh, Gary Oldman, who plays Herman Mankiewicz. Herman Mankiewicz was the screenwriter for Citizen Kane. Um, one of the two credited screenwriters for Citizen Kane, Orson Welles is the other, although according to this film, Orson Welles really didn't do that much. Um, and so uh, other than play Citizen Kane. Um, and so the film follows um the intersections of Mankiewicz's writing process and uh, the gubernatorial race uh, between Upton Sinclair and, oh God, I'm going to forget the other person, Upton Sinclair, who was pro-labor um, uh, and was more of a what we would consider a socialist liberal, quote unquote, today. Um, the film was actually written by Jack Fincher, David Fincher's dad, who passed away 17 years ago. There have, of course, been draft rewrites, um, but David Fincher gave his father full credit for writing the screenplay. Um, I know folks have had varying opinions on this film. My one thing that I don't get about this is the complaint is that it's cold. I love cold and aloof. I don't know about you, but I want it in a lover. 
So in a film, it's even better. Um, I think, no, but I think the thing that really um, sparks to me with this film is when I was watching this and I, I just was like, this feels like I'm watching a film that was filmed in the 1950s. And I was just like transfixed and transported back to that. And I, I really liked that. Um, I also knew how, I knew there was some politics to it, but I think the politics angle is super interesting uh, because I think it translates to today. Essentially what happens is that studio bosses, Grant Louis B. Mayer, who, and Irving Thalberg um, create this um, essentially like power vacuum to prevent and create a system that um, creates propaganda to prevent Upton Sinclair from losing the gubernatorial race because he is a quote unquote socialist. Um, So that weaves into the story of Citizen Kane um, and the creation of the film. I did not watch Citizen Kane before I watched this intentionally Um, because I did not want to marry the two, because I know that the two are going to be different. One is going to be influenced by one, and the other one is not. But I think for me, what really worked in this, I'll say this, Gary Oldman's performance is fine, but it is not the thing that I gravitate to most in this film, and I think that that's something that can be disappointing for folks. Everyone around him builds this very intimate world around the system and Hollywood and what it was like and what it looks like. And I will say this, Amanda Seyfried... Props. Really, really great. I mean, give her, uh, please don't give Glenn Close the Oscar. Uh, Give, (laughs) give Amanda the Oscar. She is really good. She delivers a a legitimate supporting performance and boy, does she disappear into that role. Um, And it reminds me of that classic night. Obviously she's playing Marion Davies who was an actress, but she reminds me of those like, um, Oh God, what's her face from Singing in the Rain? She reminds me of that. Debbie Reynolds? Not Debbie Reynolds, the one who was like, I can't stand ya. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Um, uh, You know who I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She reminds me of that type of person and she's just really great. I think the movie has more heart than I expected it to, especially since everyone described it as cold. I, I think my advice for those who do not like it is to go back and rewatch it again, because I think you will find what is missing. I don't think it's a perfect movie, but I really enjoyed the ride and the technical aspects are immaculate. And it's now on Netflix, correct? It is now on Netflix. Correct. Great. Thank you for that. Um, Matt, your fourth choice. Uh, my fourth choice uh, is also on Netflix. <laughs> oh. Age of streaming. Um, is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, um, which is uh, about 1927. Uh, tensions rise when uh, Ma Rainey, who is described as the mother of the blues, uh, she and her band gather in a Chicago recording studio uh, to make a new album. Um, the film is it's directed by uh, George C. Wolfe, um, who I think a lot of people probably know for more of his stage work than his film work, um, because he has Tony Awards for Angels in America, um, and also Bring Him to Noise, Bring Him to Funk. Um, but in this case, so he's directing based on a 1982 play by August Wilson. So it does have, like, there's always that, that I think, difficulty of adapting stage to screen and deciding how much to make it still feel like a stage play or how much to expand it. 
And I think there's always that challenge. Um, something that I think we, we previously touched upon as a group and then we'll touch upon more later is like, I think that Ryan Murphy in the prom does a good job of expanding it from feeling like it's just on stage. Like it has multiple places and mm. settings and camera work. My Rainey's Black Bottom still does feel a little bit like it's still on stage, but it's, it's so tightly, tightly scripted and tightly like directed that it just expands just enough. But what I'm, the thing I'm not saying about this is that the performances in this film top to bottom are absolutely incredible. Uh, Viola Davis as Ma Rainey, uh, Chadwick Boseman. Um, this was his final performance um, as the trumpet player uh, in, in her band. Um, and the entire thing is about the historic exploitation of black recording artists by white producers and what that relationship is and how that relationship existed. And it's heartbreaking, but it's also in this case, the performances are so good that you just, you're rooting for them despite the, you knowing that the odds are stacked against them. Um, I just, I think it is a, not just a textbook example, but like a really, really great example of taking again, a play from, you know, the early eighties and it feeling not just as relevant, but beyond still relevant today. Um, it's cinematography and production design both have an old postcard look to it. It's just, it's fantastic. So as we're recording this, Matt was able to get access to it early. This is the movie I am most excited to see for the rest of the year. And I'm including Wonder Woman 1984 in that list. <laughs> um, but uh, I am really, I'm desperate. And it doesn't come out until I think Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. So they, Next week. Yeah, they keep is it next week? changing the date because now also. Oh, yeah, that's right. It was supposed to be this week. Yeah, they keep changing it. So I think I think it's now December 18th. So Okay. I'm super, I'm, I could not be more excited to see this film. Very excited. So thank you, Matt. I'm glad you were able to and brought it to us. Um, with that, we are going to go out to the lobby and get ourselves a snack. Don't we miss yes. lobbies? Don't we miss movie <laughs> snacks? And we're going to take the quickest of breaks, but we will be right back. Come on back. And we are back with our discussion of the best films of 2020. I'm going to pick it up with my third pick, which is Borat Subsequent Movie Film, which is on Amazon Prime. Um, I'm not going to say that this the Borat sequel is a great film. I'm not, not even going to go there. I'm going to say that it's an important film, however, and I think it's a necessary encapsulation of where America was leading up to the 2020 presidential election, which if you're listening to this in the future um, and you weren't aware of what was going on was a fucking shit show. <laughs> and I am confident that within the next 5, 10, 15 years, the GOP is going to work very hard to whitewash this period, even though everything has been documented. They're going to try to do what they did for Reagan and what they successfully did for Oliver North and be like, it, it wasn't that bad. 
<laughs> don't, don't listen to them. It re- it will, they, no, it was that bad. It was crazy. And I'm very glad that the Borat sequel exists because you have scenes where literally Sasha Baron Cohen is going undercover, not terribly successfully, at a gun rally in Washington State and sings a song about the Kung flu. And obviously I'm saying this not because I believe any of this shit, but because that's the terminology he's used. And easily gets the crowd actual people involved in singing about who should die from the coronavirus. I believe there's talks of lynching and they're all right on board with it. And it is disgusting. It is an, an it is an absolute disgusting call out of how easily that crowd will go along with incitement to violence for anyone other than them. And that is why I'm glad this movie exists because this needs to be out there and people need to watch it. And it was hugely successful. I'm also going to argue that from a political and news situation, uh, no other movie that I think we're going to be discussing on this list grabbed headlines the way that this one did for the scene with Borat's daughter, a fictional character played in the film by the actress. I can't remember, but she's very good in it. Um, And Rudy Giuliani in a hotel room where regardless of what happened, Rudy Giuliani goes into a private hotel bedroom with a woman he believes to be under the age of 21 and he could be fixing his microphone. I don't know. But personally, I don't think I need to be sticking my hands down my pants in front of young women uh, in a private hotel room. The whole thing is sketchy as fuck. It grabbed headlines. It should have grabbed headlines. It's a mess. And I, I do think that this may be a farce, but the population that it is capturing in this farce is very real and America needs to constantly have it shoved in its face because I see it happening right now. As we're recording this, the Biden administration is going in. I'm already seeing Democrats tearing at each other already. And the same as I'm like, we're going backwards because there's not currently a single Asian American on the cabinet. We're going backwards. Are you kidding me? Like, we have a very short memory in this country, and that's why I'm glad this movie exists. So with that, I'm going to pass it off to Carissa for her third pick. I mean, I think I just need to take a second. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, on the opposite end of the spectrum, I so I am today years old when I actually did the research and learned this, and I'm extra excited. Um my film is Yes, God, Yes, which was written and directed by Karen Maine, who wrote Obvious Child, which is one of my favorite films. It stars Jenny Slate. It is everything that you wish Knocked Up would have been. It's about a woman who gets pregnant on a first uh, one night stand. And it has a lot of Simon and Garfunkel in it. It is incredible. And I Ooh. love that film. And so Yes, God, Yes is also written by Karen Maine, but this is her directorial debut. Um, and it is just, it is so fun, I guess. <laughs> like, it is so good. It stars Natalia Dyer, who is in Stranger Things. She's the, the sister, the older sister. Um Barb's best friend. Um, and she <laughs> R.I.P. Barb. <laughs> right. Glamour icon forever. And she God. runs this whole film. So it's about a woman or a, a teenager. She's like 17, I think, in like the early 2000s, um, try, who is told that there's a rumor going around her school that she tossed some guy's salad. And she spends the whole film trying to figure out what that means. 
Um, and so it's like the early days of AOL chat and she ends up going to this um, Catholic – well, she's Catholic. I think she goes to Catholic school, but she goes on this like weekend retreat thing because this really cute boy is there um, and she's trying to figure out what's going on with herself and she's like constantly trying to masturbate, but constantly being interrupted. And it's oh, just – That sounds like my life story. I, it's relatable for everyone. Like I don't think you need to have a vagina <laughs> Like, like this film, I just found it like, okay, there's a scene early-ish on where she writes something with a pencil and then she decides she wants to undo it. So she starts to erase it and then realizes that the pencil she has has one of those really hard erasers that's almost all the way down and it's mostly metal and she's just scratching the thing and the thing she wanted to disappear is now extra obvious. Like... So if you can't relate to that, I don't, I don't know. There's also a kind of a running joke about the um, the hand on the um, the car window in Titanic scene, <laughs> and uh, it's just it spoke to me. So I and that's Chris. I just want to add with that because I also loved this film, and I thought it was it's especially I, I think it's universal. Anyone could appreciate it, but especially if you lived through the late 90s early aughts i feel mm-hmm. like yeah like the age of tamagotchis and early cell phones and aol noises are so nostalgic and, in this and the download speed to see a photo yes. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. that's a running thing like she's trying to find out what it means to toss somebody's salad you know and like there she's um trying to see a photo and it just takes forever to load and it's all surreptitious and she has to close it before she can see and it's it's very funny. Today's kids will never know. I mean, they won't. But this can this is trying to tell them because the Titanic that the video that she watches is a VHS. It's the two the two VHS. The VHS so. Titanic. Yep. This, this also does reinforce the importance of why lesbian bars are a necessary part of American society. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Heroes, all of them. Absolutely, all of them. Absolutely. Thank you, Carissa. That's great, mm-hmm. Kevin. Your number three pick. My number three pick is Lee Isaac Chung's Minari. Um, I was finally able to snag a copy through a friend who gave me an A24 person's email address and I got a screener this past week. Um, It is this lovely, I'm almost Terrence Malick-like exploration of Uh, Korean immigrants in the 80s who are really just kind of trying to make their way in everyday life uh, in in surviving and thriving in America. Um, It is easily my favorite score of the year. Uh, I think it's so beautiful. Uh, The person who does the score, his name is Emil Moray. He also did the score for last year's Last Black Man in San Francisco, which is also utterly stunning. I mean, this this man is a genius and I, I hope he gets the attention he deserves. Um, this stars Stephen Yun from uh, Walking Dead. And I have absolutely loved the, the trajectory of his career um, in non-English language films. He did uh, uh, Burning a couple mm-hmm. of years ago, which is yeah, one of, yeah. oh my God, if you have not seen Burning... I think it's on Netflix. 
Um, it is, oh my God, it is one of the, it's such this great like Hitchcock thriller. I'm not talking about Burning, I'm talking about Minari, but Stephen Young has done this evolution of his career and he plays this like, it's a very different role for him versus his Burning character where he, there's just such like love and empathy. He's the dad in the family and he um, isn't exactly the lead. It's really mostly about his son who is meant to be, um, is meant to be actually the director's experience of, of being a child of immigrants, Lee Isaac Chung's experience. Um, there's also a really lovely experience with um, his grandmother who, again, I'm not going to spoil things. There's a relationship that builds and develops between the young son and the grandmother. It's super beautiful. Um, and, and what I think Minari does is explore culture in a way that's really super fascinating and the way that folks have to try and survive and thrive in the new world uh, regardless of time but this also cuts across race and language and um, community there's actually a really beautiful scene this doesn't spoil anything where um, they decide to go to a christian church in the middle of the midwest and i i think they're the they're obviously the only Asian family in this church, and the the, the otherism that you just kind of see um, and feel uh, is just really poignant. And I think you get to really explore what it feels like for folks who are non-white who are coming to this country in the 1900s to navigate what it means to like look for the American dream quote unquote. And I think this film cap encapsulates this so perfectly. It's it's just a genuinely delightful and lovely, lovely, lovely film. Kevin, I, I, Kevin I hadn't thought about describing it as Malik like, and that's such a great description. Like, thank you for that. Cause I feel like it is, I feel like it's more accessible and funnier than Malik's. Oh, a hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. Ma- that's the like part. Malik but, is fully. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't take much, right? <laughs> right Let's be right. real. <laughs> One joke, and Malik's like, "What is this doing here?" <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, Kevin, I I agree. It, it's just again, I hate to say this again, but like in a in this particular year, this would have been so much higher on my list. But I I just I had to bump things down and move things around. But no, it's beautiful. It's so great. And it's what so an great. ending! Holy crap! Like I was just edgy. Another beautiful ending. It's just so simple. And like, I think the thing that I've taken away, I guess, in summary of my films is this year, my favorite films have really have boiled down into a simplicity. Simple is more. And there's this, there's beauty in less and like there's beauty and just the visual in, in 2020 films. Yeah. And that's a lesson from 2020 in general, I think. I think that fits a lot of, that fits a lot of my picks too, really. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Look at us. We're learning. We're growing together. (laughs) Love to see it. it. Uh, Thank you, Kevin. Matt, your third pick. Um, Despite just agreeing with that generally across the board about like the lesson and simple and simple is more. My third pick is completely goes against that, which is uh, Wolf Walkers. Um, which is the mm. new animated film from Cartoon Saloon. Um, they previously did uh, The Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea. Um, Wolfwalkers is um, about a young girl, an apprentice hunter, and her father who journey to Ireland to help wipe out the last wolf pack that is quote unquote terrorizing um, outside a settlement village. 
Um, but then she ends up befriending um, a girl who then is turns out to be from the wolf pack because she is a wolf walker, kind of like a werewolf situation, but from Irish folklore. Um, wolf walkers is... Uh, I, I kind of have a similar issue to my taste, which is this issue is kind of like Ebert where like, I am very won over by highly stylized visuals. Like you immediately grab me and hold me. Um, if your visuals are so original and outlandish and stylized that like, I'm like, Oh, I've never seen this before. Wolfwalkers for me fits that to a T in terms of in an age where a lot of animation continues to get, a little similar looking. I feel like now finally we're, we're differentiating our CGI animation out a little bit, but Wolfwalkers involves two worlds. It involves a, you know, Puritan esque village and then the forest. And so the art direction in this film takes the village and makes it entirely woodblock prints. It all has that look of very angular and like a little bit like uh, difficulty in etching it. And then the forest is entirely watercolor and textured graphite. Um, And so they are so visually different that when the worlds start merging and the visual elements start merging, it's just, it's, it's absolutely incredible. Um, I just, I cannot begin to tell you how visually imaginative and narratively poignant this film is by far for me, it is the best animated film this year and the best animated film since into the spider verse. Is it available for streaming anywhere? Do you know? It is on Apple TV Plus. God damn it. I know. I know. And that's <laughs> the thing is, again, is that like, so I uh, thankfully got to see it at the Toronto International Film Festival this year, um, which was streaming. Um, but yeah, but it's Apple TV because that's they also they've been grabbing some they've been grabbing some great stuff. And I appreciate that for them. But another streaming service like, come on, right. now we're getting into the problem of like cable channels and there's just too many of them. And Bingo. And there will be a big implosion within the next three years. There there will have to be. And there will be a, a mass uh, kind of conglomeration of them, which is Absolutely. fine. Well, that sounds fascinating, Matt. And I can't wait to see that eventually when it's not on a platform that I don't have. So. <laughs> that, that's the thing. That's the problem. It's it's gorgeous. And I, it's appropriate for both adults and appropriate for families and kids. But right now it is on the platform with a very, very little limited user base. So. It's a problem. It is a problem. But thank you. It sounds great. Um, I will go for my number two pick, uh, The Boys in the Band on Netflix. And I know that this is going to be – there's at least one person on this podcast who's not a huge fan of this, and that's fine. Um, but... I'm not saying anything. <laughs> <laughs> there may be more than one person. Oh, I haven't seen it, so <laughs> – and here's what I will say about this one. So this is Ryan Murphy's uh, redo of the 1968, I think, seminal play about gay men set in New York City. And um, here's why I, I resonated with this one is it is very much a time capsule, right? It is looking at what life was like for mid-century gay men in America, even in New York City. Um, and I think one of the wonderful things about American progress is that today, gay men in their 20s or 30-somethings, generally speaking, I'm making an assumption here, but more often than not are, are able to live their lives openly and not have the fear of consequence. And I don't think maybe they're as aware of what the people before us 
did to make that a reality. Um, and so I think it's important to keep educating future generations about that. And I'm not saying that in a um, kind of um, patronizing way. I'm saying it as a, it, it's good to know your history because we didn't get here without a lot of sacrifice and a lot of pain. But I also think it's still very relevant in that there continues to be a lot of um, mental health issues and a lot of self-hatred among the gay community that expresses itself, especially in the way we communicate with each other. And that was where this movie felt very true to me. So it is, I believe, entirely cast and behind the scenes with LGBT actors and crew. Um, you have Jim Parsons in the lead role, which I'll get back to in a minute. But you also have Andrew Rannells. You also have uh, Charlie Parsons. Is that correct? Am I... Uh, uh, Charlie Carver. Charlie, Charlie Carver. I was going to say yeah. the twink. Yep. Yep. The twink. Uh, Zachary Quinto. <laughs> Matt Bomer. Um, I had never been introduced to Tuck Watkins, but I'm so glad that this movie did because oh. he's Daddy AF. Um, <laughs> Eric. Eric. He was in One Life to Live, and I remember him from many, many years ago. He is excellence <laughs> he is he is like daddies are gonna run the world in the next five years i feel and like he he 100 he can get it but um so i hear the criticisms specifically relating to parsons jim parsons is not an actor that i've really ever cared for in a uh, hot take i think him winning all those emmys for big bang theory for essentially displaying a very heightened and very narrow uh, range version of himself is bullshit but fine. Um, I actually think this is the most successful I've ever seen Jim Parsons in a role. And um, in terms of that hissing, spitting, scratching gay, mm -hmm. I thought he was very well cast and very effective. Uh, the ultimate takedown between him and Zachary Kinto's character is, uh, I thought, very realistic, especially from the time period that it existed in. And that's very real. Like, that is the height of, like, gay's scratching at each other and there's a lot of pain and a lot of um truth there so that's why i liked this movie I i'm not going to say that's a perfect movie but as a time capsule i think it was actually very important and i'm glad that we had a reversion of it uh that's accessible to modern audiences so that's where i'm coming from there i know there are people who have strong opinions on this on the podcast so if you do want to briefly share your takedowns of it i welcome that. i know i we're going to be positive and i'm going to give it two compliments um, I'm glad that Emery is played by an actual yes. uh, mm -hmm. Latin, uh, Hispanic Latinx person. Yeah. He Love was that. great. Yeah. He was He's great. And I actually think the film does a really good job of actually expanding on the Charlie Carver role, which is essentially a non-entity in the original play, original version. And I think there's a depth and sweetness to the performance that he gives that I think was fully missing from the original play, uh, that I do think expands the depth of who those young men, the quote unquote midnight cowboys were mm -hmm. of that era. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think those two pieces are things that I absolutely will give it credit for. And I will say no more. <laughs> That's fair. Um, and Carissa, did you have anything you wanted to add? I mean, for me, it, it felt like a play. Yeah. Um, so I didn't like, maybe Ma Rainey's does a better job of that, you know, but it, for me, I was kind of like, I don't, this isn't, it wasn't doing, the film wasn't doing more for me in, in that way. 
So. 100. And when Matt was describing May Ra- Ma Rainey and specifically talking about plays adapted to the screen mm-hmm. and is it making use of the um, actual, what's the word, medium here? Mm-hmm. Boys in the Band is not. Boys in the yeah. Band very much feels like a play. But I don't necessarily have a problem with that. I can't go to see plays right now. So for me, yeah. being able to see this, even though it is very much a chamber piece, it's a play. To me, it was not a negative, but I can see how it would be a negative for other people. And so, I think that I, I think it's also it's it's tough because for a play that's really really good, it is so well scripted, and it's all about the characters and it's about the dialogue. Is that the setting, in effect, in a you know, in effect, becomes somewhat secondary, depending on what the play is, of course. Like, sure. So I think mm-hmm. that it's it's just I think it's a constant battle that is faced in plays being adapted to screen, and I think. Some are more successful than others. I've, there's been a lot of discussion about that also for Five Nights in Miami about whether or not it expands the play enough. So I think I think it's interesting. But Boys in the Band also is in effect just entirely in an apartment, right? Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, like that's the thing is like, does it need to be expanded beyond the apartment? I don't know. I haven't seen it, so I don't know. It's in, it's an interesting it's an interesting challenge. I think. Yeah, because it, it kind of can't, and yeah. there are the there are some toward the end you get like flashbacks, but really, really briefly, and that's yeah. the only time you ever leave the room. But like you don't, right? Because you're still in someone's head; it's a memory. And there's establish the establishing start that everybody getting to the party is set outside of it, but is that necessary? Not really. It yeah. gives you a kind of a glimpse into the various couples or characters. Like um, there's some good establishing stuff with Andrew Reynolds and Tuck Watkinson's character where who, you get who are a couple in real life. In real life. Oh, are they yeah. really? They are, yep. which good for you, Andrew Reynolds. And P.S. <laughs> to Tuck Watkins, if that doesn't work out, please come find me. Um, <laughs> with that, I'm going to pass it off to Carissa for your number two pick. Oh my gosh. So this is a movie that you're not going to want to see. And I don't know how to really present this in a way to make anybody want to see it. So I'm just going to be really real, which is what this movie is. Um, It's called Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. And it is about abortion access, um, especially for young women. So it's a film. It really has a cinema verite feel. Um, It follows two women who are cousins. They're like 16 from rural central Pennsylvania who go to New York City to get an abortion. Um, And there's a waiting period and they have to stay overnight. And nothing has – I love my job. I love my job. I've done my job for 16 and a half years. Nothing has ever made me want to quit my job. (laughs) Like watching this movie, I was like, I'm going to quit on Monday and I'm going to be, I'm going to work at a clinic and I'm going to ensure access for women who don't, who are marginalized and who don't have it. Like I, this film inspired me in ways that, I mean, I still have my job. (laughs) I didn't do that, but I wanted to, and it made me want to, because it just, it's not preachy. It just shows you you know, it shines a light on a thing that people overlook. And like, it's it's a problem, even though abortion is still technically legal. Access is a problem. And this movie doesn't shy away from it. And what it's like to be a teen girl dealing with this. So I, I, I think it's an important work. It's not necessarily fun, um, but I think it's really important. And we say that abortion is legal. 
but it's legal for now. And I think, yeah. again, to get back on the soapbox that I was standing on during Borat, um, for those listening in the future, we don't know what's about to happen. But right now, the cards are stacked so that that could very easily be taken away. And so I think it's very important that that film is coming out in this year. Well, and legal is kind of such a technicality, right? Because some states have right. what, one clinic and this just should, like – these girls work in a grocery store. The, there's, uh, you never find out who the father is of this, um, but it seems like it's a family member. Um, it's uh, heavily implicated. They have no money. They're like they steal from the till at the grocery store, so they can afford a bus ticket. Um, it's it, it. Yeah, I I think it felt really real and it felt really important. And I, these are the things that people are struggling. Like even though it's legal, these are still obstacles, major obstacles that women yeah. are having to overcome all the time. And there's that scene where she goes to the clinic in Pennsylvania, and oh yeah, the woman the woman basically tries to talk her out of it and says, no, you need to, basically says, no, you need to come back and have a conversation with me about yep. why. Yep. And so like, yeah, it's not a clinic, though, right? It's one of those like birth. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's, with, it's a great movie. Yeah. And also when we had at one point talked about like perform, like best performances of the year and everything, like Kevin, I think you and I both said that Sydney Flanagan, the lead in this was like at the top, if not near the top of like, Yep. She's just, she's amazing. And, and Chris, I agree with everything you said. I think it's such a necessary watch. Like, because I think it's just, it's so straightforward in yeah. its presentation. And yeah. your heart can't do anything but just empathize. Yeah. And it a doesn't, lot. it's not on a soapbox. It's not any, you know, it oh. just is like, here, look, look at this. Um, and this was her first film. Yeah. Second. Her second. Because her it? first her- her first film was, I was just going to say, Eliza Hitman is just this great character study of uh, like slice of life experiences. Her first film is Beach Rats, oh, um, right. which explores this like young, closeted gay man's experience in, um, I think he lives in New Jersey, uh, but um, travels into New York City. And I think maybe it's not New Jersey, it might be Long Island, but I know he goes to like Coney Island is a big spot where you get to see the the space of the film and like what you explore with her work is just really like young folks grappling with the, uh, I guess, repression of their space and how mm-hmm. they navigate growing into or ex- not escaping per se, but fi- finding themselves in that. And I think she does such a good job uh, of giving you this like early twenties experience. She's, a, I, 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 I watched Beach Rats at uh, IFF Boston Spring Festival a couple of years ago. Um, and I, I remember seeing her at a coffee shop and I almost approached her, but I, I, I wanted to give her <laughs> her face. Uh, I, I saw her there with her wife because I believe she is a queer woman. Um, and, and, and I think she just has, I'm really excited to continue to see what she does more of. Yeah, it it the the part of the film like you kind of know what the title is referring to, but the part of the film where you get to she's at the clinic in New York, and they're like, okay, so I'm going to ask you questions, and these are I, I want you to answer. Never, rarely, sometimes, always, um, and it just is like it is incredibly gutting and incredibly powerful. Um, and I yeah, th- I'm glad this film exists. Thank you, Carissa. 
Yeah. That's great. And is it available for streaming anywhere? Yeah. HBO Max. <laughs> Eric. <sighs> yes. It's fine. We'll figure it out. But I, thank you. I, I, I think it. it is also on like iTunes and Amazon. Okay, great. Yeah, I'm and happy Eric, to pay money for these. I've I spent a say, lot of money on movie just, rentals this year. I was like, Eric, we're Matt, I shouldn't Matt, take Matt, away from HBO Max. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, it's Matt go first. I say I shouldn't try to take away from the HBO Max sponsorship, of course, but you know. Of course. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> and now, Kevin, you were saying? Message me after. Okay. <laughs> uh, speaking of Kevin, what is your number two pick? Uh, it is David Byrne's American Utopia, which is honestly, if you really want to experience joy in your life, Good Lord, this is the film. It is just this really, David Byrne is just this super awkward white dude Yo. who is just um, lovely. And he creates this musical musical stage experience that really delves into how art informs who we are and how we connect with one another. And he creates these stage experiences that are beyond what they are. And so this is actually directed by Spike Lee. Um, and, and like, this is very different from most of the stuff that Spike Lee, I think, in my opinion, has ever done. Um, with that said, I think he allows you to navigate and, and bookend his original, his original, one of his original concert documentaries, Stop Making Sense, which was directed by the late, great Jonathan Demme. Um, and, and you get this really bookended experience of what Stop Making Sense was to what a 2020 experience of culture and art are in concert form. Um, and I think what you see in this is... David Byrne is really trying to examine how we connect with each other through music, through art, through culture. Um, and it's just really fun and delightful. And in, ah, it's just everything I needed in 2020. And it is just a fantastic, also, sorry, Eric, available on HBO Max. <laughs> um, I think it's also on Amazon Prime, though. Is it? Oh, good. I, good, I good, think good, you're good. right. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Good, good, good. But it is, it is just, it is fantastic. And I think it is really about exploring how the intersection of humanity and art really work together. And I love the way he, he elucidates his musicians and brings them to the forefront. Um, this was a show that was on Broadway. Uh, I think, Thing back in late 2018, 2019. No, it was uh, on there as, as recently as this year because my colleague oh, really? saw it right but, before I think pandemic hit. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Okay. So. so it might have been late 2019. Um, and, and so I think you, I, I just I highly recommend this. If you love a good concert doc, this is it. And what you get through Spike Lee and David Byrne working together. It's just a masterpiece. It is it is utterly fantastic, and I highly recommend it. 
I, awesome. Thank you. I want to say Eric's going to murder me for bringing up this topic as like a quick aside, but something I just want to mm-hmm. like kind of ask the group about is that so I watched American Utopia on Kevin's recommendation and I completely agree. It is fantastic. It was awesome. And so thank you again, Kevin, because I loved it. Of course. Yeah. But here is this is again with like to each our own list and everything. And we're especially when we've talked a couple times now about stage and screen. One of the things that I have a hard time wrestling with personally is where to rate something that is a filmed version of a stage performance, because yep. something like like Hamilton also came out this year. Mm-hmm. Um, Spike, yeah. Spike Jones's documentary Beastie Boys Story, which is a filmed version of a stage documentary. He literally calls it a stage documentary that's been filmed. Um, <laughs> and I so that's something that I have trouble with with American Utopia as a quote unquote film is because so much of it has been produced for the stage. But I do want to completely note that Spike Lee directs the shit out of yes, this. Correct. Is that it's not just a couple cameras pointed. You feel that presence of someone directing a filmed version of a stage show. And I think that he does an amazing job of that in terms of taking something that again is just very minimal staging and makes it riveting in its actual direction. So I think it's it's a fascinating topic. And I think that's the distinction because I know yep. Hamilton might come up later. Sorry. But I think that's the difference between sorry. I think that's the difference between this and Hamilton. I think for me, that's where I that's where I denote it. It's like in the direction. I agree completely. And Hamilton will not be on my top five list, oh, but I'm it's glad not. Oh, okay. it's not. Yeah. Um, I, I, and for that exact same reason, listen, no one's going to sit here and, and, and talk shit about Hamilton. Right. right. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I watched it when it came out, very much enjoyed it. I'd never seen it on stage because I don't have that kind of money, but, um, <laughs> I was like, they did nothing but put up a couple cameras and called it a day. And that to me is not something that I think is worth putting on my top five list. Well, it's a recording. It's a recording and it's not a film. That's the difference. Although it was initially supposed to be released in theaters, right? Yeah. yeah. But it's still a recording and it's still, you know, 10 bucks to see it versus whatever. Like it's, that's the way to make it accessible. Exactly. Which I'm not complaining about. Correct. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what the distinction that we're talking about here. Whereas it sounds like American Utopia, which I have not seen either stage or film, does not do that. Um, and certainly Ma Rainey, Boys in the Band, and the other musical we'll be talking about in a few minutes, they also do not do that approach. <laughs> so I think that's I, I think that's a very good distinction, Matt, and I'm not at all mad at you for bringing it up. So thank you. <laughs> um, on that front, Matt, why don't you go ahead and take number two? Sweet. Um, so my number two... Um, which also does not come out until Christmas Day, um, is Promising Young Woman. Oh, oh, I'm so mad that you got to see this already. (laughs) And that's, we were talking a little bit during the break about, I am very wary of overhyping this because I can easily see this as a film that gets so much hype behind it that people, you know, it can't live up to it, but, you know, it can't live up to that amount of hype, but also... I can absolutely see this being polarizing. Um, I just, for me, um, oh, I should say something about the plot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a a young woman haunted by a tragedy in her past takes revenge on the predatory men unlucky enough to cross her path now. 
Yes. I'm sold. <laughs> icon. Icon. Yes. I'm sold. And that's Women, the thing. get it done. Get that's- it done. Take them out. <laughs> it is the Me Too revenge era. It <laughs> like, is. It really is. And between between the fact that this also, I would say, immediately had an iconic teaser poster and illustration of yes. Carrie Mulligan lying down, and then also a modern iconic trailer using the like tense Bernard Herman string version of Britney Spears is toxic. Like, yes, I feel like this did a good job of building its own hype. Um, and then for me personally, I was so rocketed into the stratosphere by how much it meets and exceeds that hype. Um, so the director and writer is uh, Emerald Fennel, and it's her directing debut. Um, which I also think is amazing because this film feels so like exactly like it feels like a tightly scripted. She knew exactly what she was doing. She knew exactly how she wanted this to come across. It is sinister and funny at the same time. Um, Carrie Mulligan is playing very much, I would say, against her normal type in this. She's, you know, again, she's wicked, but in a like very positive way like you understand exactly where she's coming from and um, i mean she's vindictive against men so yes we understand where she's coming from yeah that's the thing is literally at every moment in this you're like "Mm -hmm, yep guys guys wait are men bad (laughs) (laughs) kevin (laughs) not all men but also And, Sorry, I had to. I had to. <laughs> and I also would like to say that, um, so in my opinion, the soundtrack, the song selection in this is bar none the best of the year. Like, uh, I watched an interview with Emerald, Fe- uh, Emerald Fennel where she talked about writing most of the songs into the actual script for this as her, like, these are her dream choices and they were able to get most of them. But they're, it's, they're all female or they are female covers of you know other pre-existing songs. But also, if you didn't already think that uh, Stars Are Blind was a secret... Oh, boy. Banner, oh, boy. This completely convinces you. It's so perfectly used in this. It's an amazing sequence. Do you mean the Paris Hilton song, oh, Stars yes. Are Blind? Yes, I'm sorry. Paris Hilton's Stars Are Blind as an actual fantastic pop song is used in this amazingly. It's fantastic. I I'm think that so excited. 2021 should be the year that we actually address the fact that Paris Hilton had not one but two excellent pop songs <laughs> in the late 2000s between Stars Are Blind and also Screwed. They are actually legitimately good pop songs, and we just need to come to grips with this as a nation. <laughs> Listen, this if you were not on board before, this convinces you 100%. It is fantastic like this i I mean this was the movie that i was most looking forward to seeing this year this one um saint maude which is still indefinite i think and then um the french dispatch the new wes anderson because i just love him and so i'm glad that this one is actually happening this year and i'm so excited because it it is everything that i as a feminist and a woman who has been wronged by men Mm -hmm. is looking for and uh, has been looking forward to for a long time. I am so excited to talk. I'm so excited to talk with you about it afterwards. After you, see I it. can't oh, wait. Oh my god! And Matt, do you know how people will be able to watch it? 
Oh, what an excellent question that I did not actually prepare for this. That's okay. Uh, we will make sure to find that answer for you when we air this episode of the podcast. So I will pay $20 to rent that movie. Like I haven't paid $20 to rent anything this year, and that's the one I would pay for. I, I'm pretty I'm, sure, yeah, it's going to be a VOD situation. I'm pretty yeah. sure. It's okay. It, take my money. Yeah, I haven't even been paid $20 to be rented by somebody this year. So, I mean, thanks, 2020. That's how much the Midnight Cowboy was. Exactly, And he does his best. I do my best. Uh, Thank you, Matt. That's great. So, um, my number one pick is very divisive among even the people on this podcast because 50% of it, not impressed. And I've seen uh, other people as well being similarly dismayed by it. But I have also seen other people be just as... uh, delighted by it so this i will uh give you recency bias is probably paying playing a big role here because i would not have picked it as my number one uh two weeks ago uh but here we are so i'm gonna go with the prom which just came out on netflix literally two days ago um both of my number one and two picks are ryan murphy adaptations i was just gonna say eric are you in the pocket of big ryan murphy jesus Um, i don't know ryan murphy's life but um if the price is right um i could be (laughs) in his pocket Um, maybe it's twenty dollars maybe it's twenty dollars listen as i said i abandoned standards in 2020 so um but here's the thing i'm not going to the criticism i've seen of this show we're going to put this right out of threat james corden the accent is unforgivable and i there should have been several discussions about that right from the beginning so we're going to take that we're going to put off to the side um the other large issue i've seen with it is that it is ridiculous it is over the top it does not have any kind of um what's the word i'm looking for subtlety uh, it is just very much a gaudy, um, ridiculous, and implausible romp. It is all of those things, and that's exactly what I needed in this moment in my in this year. Um, I just thought it was fun, and I thought it was <laughs> silly, and I thought it was sweet, and it actually made me have feelings, which I do not appreciate. Thank you very much. <laughs> but um, I, I this was very much the way I look at it is this is an old school Hollywood musical, but in a modern take. It's not postmodern. It's just let's do something goofy where people are bursting into song, and we don't need to have some narrative device for why that's okay um it's very much a callback to old school hollywood musicals i mean the nicole kidman character is like the walking mm. representation of chicago and the chorus line all of the major characters as kevin pointed out are basic basically uh versions pastiches of hollywood or excuse me broadway icons you know meryl streep is playing the patty lapone and liza minnelli role etc and he, I, he said that the James Corden role is is uh, Nathan Lane, whereas I just get every Nelly ever on on Broadway. <laughs> like I don't think it's <laughs> person specific. Um, but to me, so the prom was an off Broadway show that was running while I've lived in in New York, and I think it closed right before the pandemic hit. I think that's when the prom was closing. It so, was. Yeah, timing of this is kind of fortuitous, I think. Uh, I did not get to see it when it was on stage, but I thought that the music in this was actually much better than I was expecting. To be frank with you, there are like three or four songs I think are really legitimately catchy, especially because uh, we just watched the One Night in Broadway special that was on NBC this week, um, and I was struck by just how uninspiring some of the other music, especially from Mean Girls. Like, Well, they picked the worst songs from that show. Jesus Christ. I was like, what do you I don't understand. 
But th- th- that was true, the, and I'm sorry, this is a digression. On the Macy's yeah. Day Parade, when they also had a Mean Girls number, that number too, I was like, are you trying to make me not interested in this show because you're succeeding? Um, but regardless, I-, I thought that the music and the prom is actually, there were three or four songs that were really, I thought, quite strong. It's a message about acceptance and all those highfalutin things and, and love and-, and LGBT. And obviously, you don't need to sell me on that stuff. But I thought it was just fun. It was delightful to me. And I think if you go into it expecting it to be anything other than just goofy and unapologetically gay, then you're probably going to find some issues with it. But for me, I thought it was lovely. So that's my number one pick. So I also uh, loved it. I, I watched it Friday night when it came out and I, and I just, I was delighted all the way through. I love Carrie Washington. I hated that she was such a Karen, um, <laughs> you know, but like, I still, I just, I love her. And Emma, that our protagonist, like her baby dyke wardrobe is everything. everything. <laughs> so adorable. So the wardrobe Nicole, in the whole movie is great. Yeah. And Nicole Kidman is the aging showgirl. Like is it's perfect. I, I loved it. It was everything I needed. And I know I, that Kevin specifically has issues with Meryl in musicals. I thought Meryl right. was very well deployed here. I will give her credit. I think she was fine here. I, I think um, I was pleasantly surprised. I just wish, like, if you're going to throw Meryl Streep in a movie, like, or if you're going to throw Nicole Kidman in that supporting role, I, I wish they did, like, a Greatest Showman blended cast where, like, I think, okay, like, Nicole Kidman is clearly Jane Krakowski. Like, it's so Jane Krakowski. It screams her. She's on a Netflix fucking TV show. Cast her. I, I, I've had this argument with friends. People don't watch musicals because of actors. They don't. Sure. They watch yeah. it because of the brand. Yeah. Uh, or sure. what is created. And so, like, blend some or blend more Broadway stars into these shows um, I did think everyone could sing. I thought everyone was fine in this. Now, granted, there was a lot of RuPaul-level auto-tune <laughs> along the way. And I'm fine with that. That That's fully okay. I think Auto-tune? That's, that's... RuPaul? Never. Well, and, and I'm, I'm fine with it in this movie. But... I'm just kidding. Oh, I know. But I mean, <laughs> I'm just passing by. Um, but I, I think, uh, I enjoyed the movie. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna slight your choice in that sense. I, I think it was fun. I think, um, James Corden deserves the guillotine, but guillotine, <laughs> but, um, for his like homophobia in his performance, actually, to be honest with you, that really belongs to Ryan Murphy because he directed him. Sure. Um, but I, I think everything else was, was fine and great. I actually genuinely enjoyed Nicole Kidman. Meryl Streep gave a solid performance. Again, I think my critique is like, I want musical theater performers to be in musicals. Like I want that. That's my, that's my, if I have to give a critique to this, that would be it. But I enjoyed the prom. It was fun. I It was I, fun. Go ahead. It was Sorry. fun. I was just say, I think that the two big things I want to bring up are Number one is just that I will say this had some of my favorite lighting of the year. I oh, it's really good. Yeah, that yeah. It, it was like balls to the wall. We're literally just gonna like put as much colorful neon on as we can. I loved it. I and especially the shot of uh, Emma and I forget terribly. I feel bad. I forget the name of her her girlfriend. But like in the case where they separate and then the lighting within the shot actually changes from a heightened neon back to a like more traditional reality. Like the lighting mm-hmm. in this is amazing. 
So, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and then secondly, I know we're kind of getting quote unquote ahead of uh, our film situation a little bit, but what I couldn't help. And I hate to do that thing where you compare one thing to another and you're like, well, this wasn't as good as the other thing, blah, blah, blah. But like this reminded me of everybody's talking about Jamie. Um, mm. Oh, yeah. So yeah. that thing. So that was a West End production. And then that production was filmed. And then the film adaptation of it is coming out this February. Um, sure. But I got to see the filmed stage adaptation. And it is also about, you know, a queer kid in high school trying to get to prom and i couldn't help but compare the two because of those elements and i so preferred everybody's talking about jamie in every way like sure just from music to the way that it was actually like put together so i think that's one of the biggest reasons that the prom fell short for me so i'm interested now to see that as a let's call it like an american culture getting them in the opposite order how that will actually make people affect their feelings about everybody's talking about Jamie when it comes out. That's a super interesting point. I had not even thought about that. I'd seen the trailer for Jamie, but that's that's very interesting. I can only say from my perspective, I came into the prom with zero expectations, which yeah. I think is always helpful. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, coming in at like the second week of December in this fucking turd of a year <laughs> and just needing needing something like yeah. for those again listening in the future right now we are still in what is literally an attempted coup in our country <laughs> by republican leadership that's not an exaggeration they're literally trying to overthrow an actual democratic election through any means necessary i needed something an uncomplicated feel good fully soaks into your bone joyful hit and this was like musical poppers for me. And so um, (laughs) for that reason, I consider it my, to be my favorite film of the year. It may not be a week from now, much like poppers. The, the the high comes down very quickly. I disappear very quickly. Very quickly. But for now I'm riding the wave Uh, with that. I'm going to pass it along to Carissa for your pick of the year. Well, I think also just, to say one last thing on the prom because I love to have the last word. Um, it's a, it's also kind of a sad musical. Like it's a musical, but there's a lot of sad moments. So huh. feels real. Feels like 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fa- my the best thing I saw this entire year is a film called Swallow about a woman who has uh-huh. pica, <laughs> and uh, which means swallowing uh, undigestible objects. And the poster is a photo of her holding a tack. Um, and I went into this film having had it recommended by a friend who saw it at a film fest and was like, Ooh, now it's streaming. You should see it. And I watched the trailer and I was like, this looks gorgeous, but also it makes me squeamy because I saw the poster. And so I went into this film telling myself, okay, if I feel squeamy, I'm going to turn it off. Um, and I did not turn this film off because I could not look away. It is visually stunning. It is gorgeous. Um, it is about a young housewife who is very controlled and has a husband who does not pay attention to her, even though I would say that she does an excellent job doing her housewifely duties. Um, she feeds him, she cleans everything, but she just, her life is so controlled because of the role that she feels she has to fulfill to stay in this marriage, which is what supports her. Um, that she looks for other ways to control things in a different way. Um, And so you see her kind of uh, start to, she starts with the marble and things progress from there. Um, 
the whole film is visually stunning and it has this very kind of like sterile feeling to it, but it also uh, like it doesn't hold back your empathy because there's no way to not empathize with this woman. And then you start to see the lengths that she goes to, but it's like the objects that she has is she has like this little um, tray on her bedside that has like her little treasures in it. And those are the things that are like disappear and then they reappear um, but it, it's just like that's all she has in this entire house that's kind of hers. And you like you start to empathize with why somebody would have this addiction or go to these lengths of control. And so I just I just found it incredibly stunning and um, something that I this is a directorial debut. So I'm very excited to see what else we will get from this director. Awesome. And had anybody else seen it? Uh- I saw it in January. Yeah, I just I agree with everything Chris has said. It's amazing. The this this there's a scene far on in the movie of her lazily eating dirt. And yeah, um, yeah. I just Oh my gosh, I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's as if she's in front of a TV eating popcorn. She's just kind of popping it into her mm-hmm. mouth. And mm-hmm. it was so such a microcosm of the film. It's it's beautiful and amazing. I agree with everything Chris has said. Everyone should definitely I mean it- it's an addiction kind of, and there's a scene later. So then, so the family that she's with, they, they hire somebody to shadow her. She's never allowed to be alone. And there's a certain part where you find the links that she's gone to, to hide something so that she can access it when she is alone so that she can keep swallowing. And that just killed me. It killed me. And I was like, this is an addiction. It's just like hiding drugs. It's the same as anything else. Um, yeah, it's, it's incredible. It's very much my partner's cat who has <laughs> and the lengths that Neji will go to to eat things that he shouldn't be eating, like currently the fake Christmas tree. We Aww. have to spray it with this whole solution. It's a thing. It's a thing. Yeah, well, this might give you some empathy into yeah. the situation. It might, but I have to say I don't think so. I will, I will tell you, do not do a deep dive on her personal life. Um... <laughs> Because it is super fascinating. The director, Actually, director? writer, director. No, 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 the actress. Actually, don't oh. do a deep, don't do a deep dive on Joe Wright's personal life. <laughs> because it is uh, messy. She is with Joe Wright, who directed Pride and Prejudice and Atonement and all those movies. And just don't don't look, don't look. I'm I'm going to say that right now because it's messy. <laughs> I liked this movie a lot more than I expected to. Yeah, sometimes I, movies, I was surprised. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes these movies can um, fall short for me, but upon your recommendation, I watched and I, I, I enjoyed it. And I think it's mostly because Haley Bennett is, is, is incredible in the role. I was going to yeah, say, she's stunning. she, she also, I feel like not that she hasn't had already a long career of doing stuff. Like she's got, you know, something like two dozen movies already under her, but like, um, yeah, I know that she right now is also in like discussion because she's in Hillbilly elegy which i haven't seen um don't see it <laughs> but i did uh in the course of rewatching things this year didn't realize she also plays the young pop star in music and lyrics uh yep. the rom-com with hugh grant and uh drew barrymore um Ooh. and uh she's so good in that that i was like oh my god it's her too so she's yep. great well thank you very much chris for that kevin i'm gonna turn to you your pick of the year uh, Nomadland. Um, it is the movie of 2020. It is uh, directed and written by Chloe Jaw, 
That is how you say her name. Stop saying Zhao, people. Oh, I keep calling it Zhao, so thank you. Yes, I am. You're not the, listen, Vanity Fair and other like mainstream podcasts call her the like big, like New York Times calls her by the wrong name. And I'm like, guys, all you have to do is Google. Google, it says jaw. Like, come on, Vanity Fair. Let's do this. And I'm just an illiterate guaylo. So okay, good. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, but um, her her first feature film was The Writer, which came out a few years ago, which I think is also a flawless film. And and I think what is really great about the work that she does is she incorporates folks who aren't professional actors in her films. And so Frances McDormand is the first professional actress who's been in her movies, um, whether it be a short or a feature. Um, and, and still Frances McDormand who is a movie star, um, doesn't overpower it with that quality. And I think what really elucidates why Nomadland is the best film of 2020 for me is there's this soft, warm exploration of what it means to be a human being who is in their 50s, who potentially did not (laughs) have a financial nest egg to allow them to safely, securely explore their old age or adulthood whether you're in your fifties or not. And I think what it does is explores middle America in the most interesting way. And and I want middle America to see this movie because I think it really is. I mean, a good bit of it actually takes place in an Amazon um, packing plant type Mm. experience where she's, she works in an Amazon factory for a good bit of the movie. And, And it kind of highlights that folks are taking these jobs, which aren't the best jobs and really kind of trying to just scout out, trying to get by to live. And I think that's a good bit of what America is doing right now. They're just trying to get by so we can yep. live our everyday lives. And I think that's what Nomadland, Nomadland does. And it's called Nomadland because she obviously is a nomad. She goes from place to place to find job to job to really live in her trailer and be a human being and try and make ends meet, survive, thrive as best as she can. She's really not thriving. She's just literally trying to survive. Um, And even when situations are presented to her where she can kind of potentially get out of that experience, she doesn't know any better. She's not used to anything different. And so um, she shirks like the comfort of stability in and all of itself for solitude and and the the isolation of where we're at today. And I think having Frances McDormand in this role, really, it it is one of the strongest performances, again, another strong performance of the year. I I wish she had not have won uh, an Oscar for, I'm sorry, Eric, I know you want to be positive, but this is me being negative about a movie from two years, (laughs) a couple years ago. uh, Feinstein. and I'm going to be I'm going to be quite blunt. That fucking piece of shit, three billboards outside of Missouri. <laughs> um, if she had not won an Oscar for that, she would have won for this. And I, I think it's it's a it's such a subtle and beautiful performance. And um, you know, you've got David Strathairn, who is 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 not even really in it that much, who's fantastic too, and his son is in it, and you get all these real life folks acting in these like real life situations. And I think that's what makes this movie so prescient. It's so beautiful. 
the cinematography is breathtaking. And I think if you go into a Chloe Jaw movie, you know that you're going to see one of the most beautifully shot films of the year. Um, and with that said, I'm also kind of excited to see what she does to a Marvel property. Yeah. She has a Marvel property. Eternals, you know, like correct? Eternals. Yeah, I'm very curious because I think she'll bring added layers of nuance and depth because that's who she is as a filmmaker. And she brings and- love to her movies. I will say, um, well, this is a bit of a digression, sorry. And Matt, we're going to get to you in just a second. But Eternals is definitely one of the Marvel concepts that I think is the least well-known for people. Uh, it's, it is a C or D level comic property. Yep. Um, and uh, I am super excited to see what she in particular does in particular does with it because even just the cast is tremendously diverse and i can tell you having gone back and read virtually all of the eternals comic books there aren't that many from marvel this is a very high concept property that goes way beyond superheroes and is really much more about society and a global society and what it means in the grand uh kind of space and time so yeah. um, this is a much it's a very highfalutin concept, and I would not trust it in the hands of anyone who did not have a very broad yet also very particular sense of what it means to be human. So it yeah. sounds like based on what you said about this movie, it really seems like someone who's got her uh, hand on the pulse of what it means to be alive in 2020. Super yeah. excited to see what she does with that property. So. Yeah, I think you'll really enjoy it. And my last sentiment that I would say is she doesn't glorify any of the problems. She actually makes them more relatable. And I think that's the thing that makes Nomadland very, it makes it excellent. Great. And and where can people watch that? Nowhere it, yet. It will be available. Unfor- it, unfortunately, it will not be available until February. Um, it was, yes, it was. <laughs> I am sorry. It was streaming on uh, some websites for the week last week uh, although many of the sh- online showings or virtual showings sold out very quickly um i have a feeling to quote the great rupal i have a feeling they might add some showings some virtual showings throughout the next couple months i wouldn't be surprised gotcha thank you thank you kevin matt why don't you take us home with your pick for the film of 2020 yeah my my favorite film uh actually ended up being driveways um which is a small indie film uh, that was released um, into both VOD and the virtual cinema program um, that th- that where distributors combined their revenue uh, to help uh, art house theaters. Um, and it came out in the spring. Um, and it is a film that's very, very quiet, but in like a really humane and relatable and beautiful way. It is um, about an eight-year-old boy um, who accompanies his mother to uh, clean out a family member's house. The family member has passed away. And so they spend the summer cleaning out this house. Um, He has a really hard time relating to the neighborhood kids. um, But then he ends up forming an unexpected friendship um, with the uh, grouchy old man who lives next door. Um, If this sounds kind of like an indie that you might have already expected to have seen in like the late nineties, you're not wrong in that the plot very much has that kind of a, a feel to it. It has a real sweetness and a softness to it. Um, but it is directed so exquisitely by Andrew on who is, um, an out gay director. 
Um, and the cast in it is fantastic. Um, Hong Chow um, is the lead actress in it, and she is amazing. Um, people might originally know her as uh, she got some award buzz when she was in Downsizing. Um, but more recently, she was in Homecoming, um, the television series. Oh, and she's yeah. also in Watchmen as the head of that, you know, crazy organization. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which which crazy organization? Uh, I don't remember the name of it now, but the one that has the giant clock. And she... Oh, and, my God, I loved her. Yes, she yes. was incredible in yeah. Watchmen. Yes. I thought that's who you were talking about. I love her. She's so good in Driveways. Yes, she's so... Yeah, she's amazing in it. And then Brian Dennehy, um, who's, you know, made an incredible career over playing like little character parts, um, is the man next door. This was his final performance. Um, and uh, Lucas J, who's the kid, is also, you know, a young child actor, is fantastic. It just, Driveways has a sensitive, beautiful, natural ease to it. It's sweet without being sappy. Um, and it's set in present day. But if you replace like, the tablet for like a game boy it easily could be set you know in in any like modern era it's just it's about relating to other people and it's about a brief moment of growing up for both adults and kids and i just it is it's feel good without being overly saccharine and i just i think it's a beautiful beautiful little film yeah, I watched it because I saw it was on Matt's list and I was like, oh, I want to see some more films. Um, and I was able to rent it on Fandango for like four bucks. I don't think that's currently available. I don't know how I swung that deal. <laughs> um, but I saw it described as a, a film about kindness and that kind of is what it is. And it's just it's just everything about it. It's quiet and it's lovely and those three characters, the boy, his mom, and then the neighbor, like each of them are so distinct and played so well. And they just, everything comes together in such a way that is just so wonderful. And it's such a, such a lovely thing to, to take in. And it's uh, like, I haven't seen this movie, but I do think it's worth pointing out that if there was kind of a yearning in 2020 it's about connection. And it sounds like what yeah. you're talking about is this is a film about connecting with other people, which we are incapable of doing physically right now. Absolutely. Yeah. People who are different from yourself, people who are different ages, different races, different backgrounds. Like this takes place in Michigan and I forget where they they travel from to clean out this house, but it's not there. You know, it's a trip. So it, they are out of their element. They are um, – they are not white, you know? So yeah, it, there's a, there's a lot of levels of relating to people on a people level. And I think politically, geographically, socially connection seems really difficult right now. So yeah. I can see why that would really resonate with a lot of audiences. So fantastic. Well, thank you, Matt. That's a, that sounds like a, a great one that we'll have to check out. And right now it's not available for streaming that it, you're aware of. It is. Actually. It's on Showtime. It's on Showtime. Uh, it's as I say, it's actually because of it coming out earlier this year at this point now it's on all major streaming platforms. Well, for rental, like it's on Amazon and YouTube and yada, yada, yada. So, and if you have Showtime, there you go, free. Oh. It's for free. <laughs> for free. That's my best. That's the best. Oh free. yeah, ninety nine. Yeah, it's a three dollar rental on a on a lot of places. So yeah, go check it out. It's really good. 
Thank you. Well, there you have it, folks. Those are our picks. Did you watch any of them? Do you have your own opinions? Is there something else that we missed? This episode is just the beginning of the discussion, so let us know your favorites on social media and at greatpopculturedebate.com. And you better buckle up because the Great Pop Culture Debate has plenty more in store for 2021. Come right back to greatpopculturedebate.com after the new year as the polls for season three will be opening up for your votes. We're talking best movie musical, best one hit wonder best ben and jerry's flavor and best muppet just to name a few make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on spotify apple podcasts youtube or audible and that you follow us on all of our social media platforms so you can get the latest news and episodes and if you haven't supported us on patreon or pod here yet what are you waiting for? There are so many great perks, and we'd love to have you as part of our little podcast family. I want to thank all of my panelists for all of their hard work on this. Thank you for listening this year, and let's look forward to a bigger and hopefully brighter 2021. Thanks so much. Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.